We are tonight's entertainment. You can't handle the truth. The fire rises. Pizza time. You're a wizard, Harry. So it be. You know how much I sacrifice? You think that's air you're breathing? Groovy. I don't have friends. I got family. We services hello trent hi parth what well clearly we don't have trent algar with us today um and that would be because we tried to record an intro a few days ago and um it didn't go so well we had a crowd of other people um namely previous guests jackson clark claire appel chloe ditloff and um Maybe I'll include some of what we said in our previous intro later on in the episode, but here we have previous guest of the Gone Girl episode, Sophia Alexis. Hi, happy to be here, Parth. Glad. I'm glad you're happy to be here, but I'd be happy to hear what you've been eating most recently. Most recently, I had a cinnamon roll, Parth. What about you? It's funny you say that. Um, Sophia made cinnamon rolls, and um, I had one. I had not one, but two, but not two, but three. Um, They were quite good. I liked them quite a bit. Glad to hear it. Yeah. You know what else I like quite a bit? Hmm. Cueing the intro. Welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about the movies. Each week we talk about a film and hopefully have a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience working on the picture. This week we have cinematographer Mark Irwin worked on 10 Things I Hate About You. Sophia, I know you haven't listened to this episode yet, but was this a good interview? It was a great interview. Yeah, Uh, Mr. Irwin was really nice. He worked on not just 10 Things I Hate About You, but... Scream, um, and uh, get into that a little bit. He worked on not one, but both Teen Beach movies. Just putting that out there um, for all you beachheads um, in our listenership. Um, yeah, uh, this was a good interview, no? Yeah. Yeah, it was great. I love all those movies, and I'm looking forward to hearing it. Yeah, he goes into a few specific shots. He talks about how... Uh, One of the security guards broke his teeth and was bleeding during the scene where Heath Ledger sings uh, Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. Um, Yeah, but I don't want to give too much away, so why don't we just cut right into the interview. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with Mark Irwin, ASCCSE. He's the cinematographer behind such films as Robocop 2, Dumb and Dumber, Scream, The Fly, and our film for today, That 10 Things I Hate About You. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for uh, for inviting me, and 10 Things about uh, I Hate About You is one of my favorite films as well, so I'm, I've got all the answers. You just need to ask all the questions. Um, so just to start off, if uh, you don't mind uh, telling us how you got involved with the film industry. Well, for those who want to start young, I started at a very young age, five years old, uh, threading my film script projector 
at in my Sunday school class. And that led to m- projecting movies all through school, uh, slideshows, the whole deal. And, and that got me interested in images to tell stories. And I would study these films that I was projecting. Luckily, I was the kid who would roll the, uh, I've, I'm sure you've seen it in, in older movies, kids rolling the projector up and down the hallway and projecting the movie. The class would see it once and half of the kids would fall asleep. I would watch it six times and learn, 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 and learn. So I started taking pictures, started making movies in high school in the in the 60s, and that led to um, film school and then started in the film business in Toronto in what are now called indie films. They were, they were called low-budget films in those days. We had no money, and yet we started making movies. And that led to me meeting on a low-budget film from a low-budget producer, a film about drag racing uh, set in Montana and shot in Alberta. And that was uh, David Cronenberg directed that film. And I have his French cameraman to thank for quitting the job on the Thursday before the Monday, the first day of shooting. So I got to meet David, who I had spent a year writing my thesis in film school. He didn't know that. So I ended up working with David on a film called Fast Company in 1978. And uh, he was quite impressed that I understood his style and I got into this. I didn't want to tell him that I'd been studying him for most of my life. Um, Nonetheless, that's how it started for me. I leapfrogged to a film called The The Brood and then Scanners and The Dead Zone and The Fly, then moved to Hollywood and started doing uh, Robocop and The Blob and Scream and all kinds of movies. And somehow, somehow swerved into comedy so much so that when I did Dumb and Dumber and then something about Mary and Kingpin and um, old school, all kinds of market movies, as they weren't uh, they weren't especially that uh, they weren't horror films. And after a while, people would call my agent and said, "Has he has he ever done a like a horror film? What do you mean like The Fly, like Scanners, like Dead Zone, like Robocop? Yeah, like those. Well, he did shoot those. Oh." But lately, that's what they wanted to know. So I don't know if that brings everyone up to date, but here we are in the the 23rd year of the 21st century. And I started in the middle of the 20th century. Long time, 50 years. So the 10 Things They Hate About You, uh, I think, falls more into your your second act's comedy, uh, going from horror to comedy. And how did you you find yourself... Uh, in contact with those people and what did you did you like the script or what were your conversations with the director how'd you get involved it's interesting the just as a frame of reference most people like myself we are there's a line in hollywood above the line in terms of the breakdown directors actors producers screenwriters below the line myself here's the line underneath director photography editor production designer so I was hooked up with Gil Younger by the, uh, the matchmaking skills of the, uh, um, I guess it was a, a team of uh, agents at that point. And this was a Disney film, and I'd done some Disney TV stuff. So I got to meet Gil, who was doing uh, a sitcom, and I, for, I literally forget the name of it. He was a specialist in sitcoms. That was when everything was still shot on film. Certainly sitcoms were. And he was at Warner Brothers, so I, I kind of got to meet him during the, the shooting of this show. And he had four cameras, 
all in one monitor. And uh, they would call it a quad split. And these video taps, these cameras would rove around. And they, they all had a plot as to how to, to cover everything. Very, very detailed, but very sitcom-y. And he would be behind the monitor. Yes, yes he, getting animated and excited. And I was thinking, this could be interesting working with this guy because he is on the outside. It wasn't nothing held inside. Uh, but he was very enthusiastic, and he liked the fact that I had done some hit comedies like There's, There's Something About Mary. And there are a, a lot of uh, Dude Wears My Car kind of comedies that are different. American Pie too. I think I had shot it by then. Uh, so he understood that I understood the range of what comedy is. And comedy, as I've often told people, it's the hardest thing to do. Making people laugh, that's hard to do. I shot a Jackie Chan film in Hong Kong. That was easy. Kicking people in the head, blowing up cars, there's a formula. You do it in this pattern and then cut it together and put in some sound effects and music, and it works. But making people laugh, just ask Jim Carrey. It's pretty hard. <laughs> pretty hard for him these days. Anyway, that was how I, uh, I met w with Gil, and he had certain perspectives on uh, how his film should look. Um, does that answer the question or I can go on? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, like one of the, the, the next question I was going to ask is every time I watch 10 things I hate about you, I'm sort of not taken aback, but it's always surprising to me just how visually based so much of the comedy is. And so I was kind of wondering, um, in the planning process, how, how involved, uh, were you and what were those conversations like with the, the director? On this, in this particular case, uh, some directors will shot list and storyboard and be very, very exact about what they want up front and say, this is what I want. Well, how about, no, 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 this is, yeah, but I see, oh, no, no, no. And they, they have the Hitchcock stamp. You know, they sit in their chair waiting for what they want is given to them. The comedy with these young kids was different because Gil had had a kind of pedigree of a lot of different sitcoms and where there's a little kid and the teenagers and the mom and the dad and the boyfriend and Everything is changing all the time. He knew he had a stock number of people, and yet he didn't want to say, you have to do this, you have to do that, because it wasn't, next week we'll do the same thing with different words for the next episode of the sitcom. So when uh, Julia hadn't really done anything comedic, and she was the straight man, a uh, straight woman in this case, uh, Joey was, uh, and um, uh, Krumholtz, they, they were, they had, paid their dues in comedy. So they were able to back off a bit. And um, Heath, Heath's first film in America, uh, when he, it's funny, when he landed, we were shooting at, at, uh, at Stadium High on the field, and he gets out of this van and walks over to Gil, and, and, and Gil says, pleased to meet you, we have a tragedy here, because Heath is a natural blonde, and Julia was a blonde. Everyone had that look, and you're playing a bad guy, and so we, they ended up dyeing his hair I, virtually jet black and giving him that whole uh, bad boy attitude. Um, so Gil never had, like some directors have, this imprint, here's a shot list, do this. He would see a blocking and then watch it again from a different angle and let it kind of flow together, and then he and I would work out uh, the coverage, whether it was a tracking two shot down a hallway, and then you dump off somebody at a locker and come around. Um, comedy works best unedited in the sense that uh, I'm looking at you, both you guys in a, in a two shot 
that's where the comedy is. If you start cutting, 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 the audience feels like I'm being manipulated, even though they're they're not verbalizing that. They feel that the the uh, originality of it all, it, uh, you know, Abbott and Costello, uh, um, Harold, no, Harold Lloyd was a single. Uh, there was uh, uh, the Three Stooges. Well, I'm that always worked in a group rather than person, 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 and there were always foils. Uh, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was great because he could he learned how to underplay things from um, Third Rock, on Third the Rock sun. from the Sun. Yeah. You know, yeah. So Gil was very open, and he really liked. The difference was the the film is credited. Of course, it's a it's a re update teenage version of Taming of the Shrew, and these two women who had written it really had written a treatment. So Gil said, thank you very much. Here's your $100,000 fee. I never want to see you again. Brought in his 10 writers from Warner Brothers, all the sitcom actions. And, and that's a whole different style of comedy. Um, they were, so we'd be shooting in a hallway in the school and the, uh, the video village for the director was nearby. And then the remote village was for the writers. And there were 10 of them. And they'd come in with their coffees and their bagels and they'd get, they'd get, uh, into that vibe and they'd watch the take and watch the take. And then the first day, two of the writers came out and said, Gil, here, I got to talk to you. And that didn't go over well. So uh, Gil listened to these guys and they said, you're not getting the funny. This is where it becomes a contact sport. I was quite amazed that comedy was such, such a head to head operation, but you think this is funny. I know funny. You don't know funny. You don't know. This isn't fucking funny. I know. And the first day, okay, children, Everybody leave now, and they would fight it out. So it that was the first day, first setup. Uh, so then it turned out the only way Gil would take their notes, uh, unlike in a in a sitcom thing where you you shoot on a, a Thursday or a Friday, and everyone would write and rewrite during the week. He said, "Here's what I want: you put all your notes on a postage stamp, post you know, post-it note, and bring it out and put it on my monitor." Send a PA, and they'll come out. I never want to see you guys again. You got good ideas. Don't do this in front of these kids. And so that that set the rules more than anything, I believe that. And uh, I really respected. We all respected him for laying down the law. I, I guess every uh, you get into trouble, and everyone everyone's sensibility for funny is their own sense of humor. But uh, I read something online that uh, you shot only on location. And uh, I was wondering if that was true. And I also read that it's like the high school was like the nicest high school in the whole world. And so, uh, but I read that it like used to be like a train station and then there was a fire and it got converted to a high school. And I thought that that was interesting if that is. Yeah, there's variations. Everything that you say, there are variations of truth buried in that. I, I'm sure and that's it was, what in fact, yeah, the Internet's for. <laughs> but it really is a real high school. And it looks like a chateau, and they call it Stadium High because that's kind of the biggest thing about it. It's right. This is, was not in Seattle. It was in Tacoma, which is quite close. Uh, and the stadium itself was this kind of weird amphitheater that had been a stone quarry 100 years earlier. The, the, the school itself was a railway hotel, and the railway station across the street, I'm sorry, was down the hill. Uh, it, it's a very tough bit of uh, um, geography and geology, for that matter. 
the, the railway station moved or burned down or something, and this railway hotel didn't have any business. So it was derelict for a while, and then the city bought it. And so what, what did we do with it? And then it became this high school. But it, it doesn't have elevators. So uh, inside, you know, we did some scenes. Alice and Danny's office, for example, was upstairs with a view. Everyone And Gil was very adamant. He wanted to see out the windows everywhere. Everything balanced it. Even if it was a blue sky, that you wanted to see that. So that meant hauling everything up to the third and fourth floor up these narrow staircases, which were just barely to fire code. Um, it was a much more athletic achievement than than uh, most films in, in high school. You just roll down the, the uh, hallway and go into that room. Um, the The prom itself was at the I think it's the Palace Theater in Seattle. The exterior, the lobby, the big lobby where people come and go and kiss and, and break up and run away. The interior of the prom itself was in a, uh, I think, the Odd Fellows Club in downtown Seattle on the second floor. And that was that was a monster because, ironically, you know, we use a lot of lights that are allegedly the reason why sets are so hot. And that was at a time in the 90s when we used a lot of fluorescent lights that were just coming in and they were not hot at all but if you have a room full of 200 people each person is 98.6 degrees wow it's hot in here your lights are too hot actually if this was empty with the same lights on you wouldn't feel it so i just remember everyone being in this this tuxedo environment and it looked so elegant and everyone was sweating you know do you see my feet do you see my feet i want to take my shoes off take my pants off so it was uh it's much different in reality I'm sure they were, uh, like, dancing to no music as well. And I watched some behind-the-scenes stuff, and it's just, like, you hear the actors delivering their dialogue in, like, a crowd scene, and it's, like, painfully quiet behind them, and everyone's just, like, shifting yeah. in place. Yeah. yeah. And the, the band itself, they played to their own playback. So we recorded them. Uh, the girl who sang was, was, you know, you need cleaner sound than you get in this big echo chamber with a handheld mic. Um, there's a click track uh, that uh, they play the music and then dissolve that to a click track that and it's so people weren't dancing uh, arrhythmically. Um, the worst thing is, I mean, that's not bad when people are dancing around and you can kind of put the background out of focus. When people are singing without singing and they're lip flapping, that's when it gets embarrassing. So you have to make sure you uh, sometimes they'll have sound recorders who will bring up the audio between lines so people will find their place uh, if they're singing. But in this case, they were just dancing, and they were all kids from Seattle. They, <laughs> they were into grunge rock, so they weren't dancing around with tuxedos very often in their lives. Not a lot of practice. Really. Right. So I was wondering how long the schedule for the movie was, and if you guys had a lot of – was there enough – or was there any rehearsal time, or was it kind of just on camera you were figuring it out? The schedule was the prep was kind of elaborate because they were still casting during um, during all the prep. I think it was a thirty day shoot, wow. all in all. And we went back and forth from Seattle to Tacoma, which is is one of the busiest corridors on the five freeway in uh, in uh, Washington State. So it it got a, a bit much to go back and forth. You're absolutely right. We never shot other than on location, every house, every bedroom. And some of these little funky houses were, uh, uh, I think it was uh, 
cat's bedroom or her sister's bedroom. You have to get everything up in this room and up a shaky staircase. So it's always a challenge, but it worked out. Yeah, uh, like Parth mentioned before, uh, like so much of the camera work in this was like very intentional. And like you, uh, like there are a lot of like oneers or long takes like going in to like yeah. the dance club. And I guess were, yeah. were those difficult to get right? Well, the mechanics of, of camera work versus the mechanics of lighting, steady cam or dolly moves and lead or a crane shot that goes up a staircase or down a staircase. That is usually the one that gets all of the attention because it's how do you fit this in? Mm-hmm. How do you do it? Uh, the, the director was very speedy and he wanted, come on, let's go, let's go. And, and he's this giant staircase was into a theater, which the prom wasn't taking place there, but he said, from the balcony where they they kind of she he gives her a corsage I think but um, there was another kind of uh, part of the lobby that was very exotic and he said why don't we shoot there after having scouted this laid all the cable lit everything and now he's saying let's do that and well we're not lit we can't do this and he said well why don't you get one of those balloony things and I don't know if you're familiar with helium balloons that are have lights inside them. So they can float above a church or, in this case, a hotel lobby. You can't rig things on the ceiling. And they aren't something you carry around in the truck. You've got to order it and bring it in and do the, do the thing. And my gaffers looked at me and were thinking, oh, man. And I said, what this is, I don't know. I use the term Kmart lighting, but that's really where it comes down to. Flat light everywhere. Turn on a light. It's all soft. This was a romantic scene with a little edge to it, a little dramatic edge. It couldn't just be flat. And I'm trying to find the right words to say, I don't want it to look flat and ugly. It should look romantic with backlight and a little sparkle. And I said, uh, Gil, there's, there's a difference between lighting and illumination, which is what a balloon would give you, just like a basketball court. You go to the gym, turn it on. Okay, we're lit. But if this is the winning game or some some dramatic thing we want to have shafts of light and do that. And this was the same situation. And instead of saying, yeah, you're right. I, yeah, let's keep it here. He went off on me and he said, Hey, Hey everybody, this guy knows the difference between lighting and illumination. There's a big difference. Come on over and listen to him. Tell you all about lighting. Needless to say, we didn't have a balloon. It was <sighs> only 12 hours away in another city. Um, and lighting, it would have cost our day. So we had a steady cam. We did. I, Starting on uh, just turning the clock back to 1994 with Dumb and Dumber, I normally it's, the method is to shoot multiple cameras if you're doing a stunt. And the first day of shooting on Dumb and Dumber with Jim and Jeff, and we shoot with one camera. And the two directors say, "Great, so Jim, I want you to do this where you when you said this line and you turn your head this way." And wait, 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 Jim said, "What did I do?" I, I don't know what I did. I can't do that again. Oh. And they, they every, both directors look at me and said, how are we going to solve this? We need another camera. So just like shooting sitcom-ish, everything is matching, a two-shot and Jim single. Uh, and it was the same kind of thing with a, a lot with Heath and Julia because they had this this love-hate. I mean, 10 things I hate about you. They were... They were always playing to the edge of that, and yet the romance 
was there. It was great to know that the audience knew that he was on the take and she wasn't aware and to always waiting for that veneer to fall away. And uh oh, and that was the moment. So we used two cameras most of the time. Sometimes I, I put two cameras on one doll, uh, two dollies on one track and they get different sizes. Sometimes it'd be two, two tracks and two dollies. And it was got to be a little, um, uh, combat optical camera combat but it all worked out awesome yeah i, I wanted to move into some like specific scenes um in the movie um mm. w- one of my favorite scenes and i guess one of the more iconic scenes in the movie is heath ledger um singing can't take my eyes off you <laughs> um in the the stadium and i was yeah. just wondering if, if there's anything you could tell about shooting or prepping or anything about that sequence well, that the real stadium is just concrete. It, it is when people go to a game, they bring their own pads to sit on because there were no seat rests. There's no, you know, elbow rests. It was just like this kind of uh, Roman Colosseum thing. So when we would sh- we'd shoot the, the in the field and other stuff, there were people who had to, I got to get my steps in. I got to get my steps in. And they'd push, even if we were rolling, some lady with these uh, a hairband and, and uh, warm-up things and little uh, handheld weights would push through and she'd run up and down the steps, so we had to deal with that. So when we came to shooting just on those, I call them the steps, even though it was the stadium seats, that was that was quite complicated. There was two cameras, for sure, above and below, and he kept saying, I don't know, Gil, I don't know if I can do this. And, and he kept saying, have fun with it, have fun with it. I don't think, I mean, Heath had been quite a serious actor in Australia. Uh, and obviously with the Joker, he went, he went to that serious place. You know, he knows how to do that, but he was young. He hadn't done this fun, fun stuff. And that was kind of an American, um, not defined thing. There's other shows that are funny, but he was, uh, uh, he was unwilling to just break loose. And finally he did it and did this whole Frankie Valley showbiz thing with the, the hand gestures and the microphone. One note, uh, because he had to go up and down and was finally chased by, unfortunately, uh, this security guard was cast, this kind of, uh, I'll just call him chubby uh, guy who ran around. And then he'd fake him. He'd kind of lead him, and then he finally faked him out, and this poor guy slipped (laughs) and did a crap ball. Uh, As it turned out, he broke two teeth. Oh, my God. (laughs) Because when your head hits concrete, it's not like you're rolling the grass. So, and so Gil would say, one more take, and this poor guy is bleeding everywhere. So that was something uh, from a human level that I remember. <laughs> but, but Is, is uh, that in the film, the, the take where, always, like, yeah. he... Wow. Not the aftermath. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't want to see blood pouring on anybody, much less the bad guy. But, yeah, that was fun. And, you know, this was, I like the fact that the, everyone in the film was a high school, virtually a high school age. Or, or at least looked like it. Uh, I mean, David Krumholtz and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, they, they've now grown up into serious actors. But in those days, they were just these crazy kids. And they had this, the chops to carry things uh, comedically, which was much harder than just uh, let's uh, give it more intensity or, uh, you know, he's not breaking up with a girl. He's, he's, kind, he's kind of... Uh, trying to be suave and you know he's not and he's only in in 10th grade so 
that was fun. Yeah, Joseph Gordon-Levitt like actually looks like he's sixteen, which is so reassuring when the cliche is that like all high schoolers and high school movies look like they're twenty-five. Um, but especially when they cast two lead actors who are in the thirties, and everyone else in the high school is sixteen. Yeah. I think. <laughs> it makes them stand out even <laughs> he more. Really. Yeah, he, he must have flunked 12 times to come back every year. <laughs> uh, so another specific shot that kind of, like, stuns me um, is it's, like, the establishing shot of, like, Kat and Bianca's house, and it, like, starts outside, and then I believe it's a crane shot, and it, like, goes through the window, and it's her reading. And then I'm not sure if you, if whatever camera operator gets off the crane, but uh, that just, like, always stuns me. And I know... There's a shot in Scream, which you also were the DP of, where it's establishing the high school and it's a crane shot and then the camera operator gets off and it continues walking with the camera. And it's just very stunning. That The one in Scream was a was a step off mm. from a crane. The one in 10 Things I Hate About You was we tried many different ways. We eventually took the glass out of the window. Mm, cool. Because you could not see this giant crane. It was 27 feet long. Yeah, the long. reflection. And I operated all the films you've seen, I've operated uh, other than Steadicam. So I, uh, every single film, uh, it's just the European style. That's how, how, I, how I do it. And that was a complicated shot because the crane, unlike these uh, techno cranes that are telescopic now, you can, you can reach out into something. We had to just find a way to, with this solid arm, to swing around. So it has a little bit of an arc and then goes into the window. And then we kind of uh, used the rubber zoom, a little bit of a, uh, um, a, a zoom in. The hardest part was to match the lighting so she wasn't in the dark the whole time and then not see the lights when you get in there. So we had to time it out to the right time of day. It wasn't so bright that we had to melt the room. And, you know, that's that's how you do it. And then I read something about, like, the ending helicopter shot of, like, the band playing on the roof. And something about how, uh, the in an interview, the band said that they were encouraged to get it right as soon as possible. Because, like, each time the helicopter had to take off, it cost, like, half a million dollars or something like that. And that they, <laughs> they would just see the helicopter approaching in the distance. And they'd be like, we don't know what's going to happen next, but let's just start acting like we're playing our instruments. Oh, no, it was all, it, that wasn't like that at all. It was the first AP, uh, everyone was in communication all the time. You can't, we had to get FAA permission. It was, when you fly that low, that kind of aggressively over a populated area, it's not like, let's see what happens. No, no, flight plans, everything. It was very, very well uh, controlled. Uh, the first AD had three radios, one for the camera, one for the uh uh, the actors or, you know, singers, the band, and one for the helicopter. So he had all these radios and he's talking, queuing. The, the, what I remember, because I wasn't in the helicopter, that was, that was a, a, whole, a whole different rig. The, camera, <laughs> the helicopter doesn't cost half a million dollars, so I don't know where that money uh, suggestion came from. And they went down to a parking lot next to, the, to, to Puget Sound and came back. They didn't have to go to an airport or go miles away. Uh, the one thing I do remember, though, is that the bank, there was a little tiny stair, staircase, like a ladder, and you have to climb up and come out this port. And, and somehow, I don't know how all the props guys got all the drums and everything up there, but it was all to playback, but they needed the drums and everything. And the drummer was 
he got kind of stage fright or height fright or mm. whatever you call it. Vertigo. And yeah. later he looked out and said, oh, no, 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 no. And kind of went crazy. And the little skinny girl, the singer, was behind him. And, and she, she oh, come on. And she pushes him out on the roof. And we're all watching this from down below without the helicopter. Just you can the, the kind of the tension. Uh, it's a very, it, it's one thing to be in a, a, a elevated position like that and be like downtown. In, in Manhattan or something, there's buildings everywhere and you feel like you're part of it. But when you're at the tallest point and everything else you can see all the way to Canada, out to the ocean, and that's when you feel like you're going to fall off. So everybody was safety down there, as I recall, anyone who was uh, afraid. If you fell, you'd fall on the floor or the roof, you know, it was dead flat. You wouldn't uh, go off. But uh, sometimes the brain has this vertigo thing and you're drawn toward the edge. Um, that that was a that was a fun scene and and I didn't, I haven't seen haven't seen it before or since, for that matter. Yeah, that kind of bravado. Just sure we'll do the do the theme song uh, and go round and round with a helicopter. Run the credits. It's like a big bow at the end of the movie of complicated camera moves. It's like here's one. Yeah, yeah. but it doesn't come. There's the thing that I call look at me lighting and look at me shooting, mm. and that takes you away from what it's about and. Uh, it just looked, Hey, look at me. And this was, wasn't that I thought it was very complimentary to the spirit of the, the whole thing. As I recall, Heath Ledger had left. And I think the props assistant was the one who had the same kind of hairstyle. Uh, <laughs> so I think it pulls out from Heath kissing mm-hmm. Julia. And so this, this <laughs> props guy got to kiss Julia the whole day. I hadn't counted wow. on that, I don't think. Wow. Oh, good day. That's good, <laughs> good, good day to be a props guy. Yeah. What an interview, Sophia. Oh, that was really something. Yeah. Just 30 straight minutes of questions, answers information lots of information lots of information but there's more to come really there's a part two coming out next week um part two with mark Irwin. that is wow after that interview i can't wait for next week i know um and again as i alluded we have recorded an intro where potentially everybody but me was a little not in the right headspace. Um, and Jackson Clark took great offense to me saying that I was going to have to redo this in- intro. So I'll include some of his singing, which he um, asked me to put in. So, so here graciously we go. gift yeah, our ears so, with. Yeah. So here's Jackson Clark singing. Super Jackson Clark would like to sing now. I dream a dream of a pod worth recording. <laughs> Wow. That was really some singing. That was definitely Jackson Clark singing. Absolutely. Anyways, what you can definitely do is go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, Amazon Music, wherever you listen to your podcasts, and go listen to us. And on all these platforms, should they leave a review? Should they leave a rating? Like, I don't know. I think that if they feel so inclined, a good review and a rating, five stars, a like... That would really help us out here. 
It really would. And again, next week, we're continuing on with uh, part two of our Mark Irwin interview. And then it's going to be Trent and his good friend Jordan Sikafus talking about the movie. But that's it for this week. We'll see you in the next one. Bye, everyone. We just need to end the episode. We just need to end end it. I'll end it. No, you. And this will take us to the credits. Path always has so much ideas. (laughs) He wants me to be so quiet. But all I want to do is try it. Try the podcast. Pod, pod, podcast. <laughs>